Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Ovik Roy, who's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a U.S.-based think tank, and a prominent conservative policy thinker on a range of topics, including healthcare, poverty, and cryptocurrencies. He's recently played a leading role in drafting and promoting a major policy manifesto called the Freedom Conservative Statement, which counts amongst its signatories figures such as former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, conservative writer Jonah Goldberg, and Washington Post columnist George Will. I'm grateful to speak with him about the manifesto, including why he thought it was needed, how it differs from the ideas and priorities put forward by the so-called national conservatives, and what their debate tells us about the character and state of American conservatism. Ovik, thanks so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Don, thank you. It's great to be with you. I, I grew up north of Windsor in suburban Detroit, li- watching Hockey Night in Canada on CBC Channel 9. So I have a, a special affinity for my Canadian neighbors, even the ones who don't <laughs> root for my Detroit Red Wings. I've heard that you're a Wings fan. I'm afraid we won't get to that subject today. At least I don't plan to. We'll have to have you back on to, to talk about their prospects for the upcoming season. Well, you know, we, 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 lent, we lent Team Canada to uh, Steve Eiserman for, for a few Olympics. And uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we get some credit for that. Yeah, amen. Let's start with the statement itself. When did you decide to pursue it? What was the process to draft it? And how did you go about getting people to sign on to its vision? Well, uh, I think... The way to explain it is I have to give the, the national conservatives uh, some credit. So we've had this, you could say, post-World War II conservative consensus in America or had for, for a period of time from, from the 1950s to the rise of Trump, in which there was, as it's often been described, the three-legged stool of individual freedom, social conservatism, and fighting the communists, particularly the Soviet Union, defeating the Soviet Union. And, and that started to fray at, as the Cold War ended. So the Berlin, Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union falls apart. And pretty much immediately, though we didn't necessarily notice it at the time, that consensus started to fray. People didn't really Think that people didn't really know what was the what was the thing that was going to replace the Soviet Union in, in terms of the foreign policy. Uh, what, what was the conservative foreign policy after the end of the Cold War? And uh, the libertarian, economically oriented people and 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 the social conservatives didn't necessarily see eye to eye on each other's favorite topics. The social conservatives weren't as attached to free market economics necessarily, and the and the uh, libertarians weren't necessarily as attached to social conservatism. So this coalition, which really was glued together through the common enemy of the Soviet Union, they all had reasons to understand that whatever our differences may be, the Soviet Union was a greater threat to all of our priorities, and so we should all stick together. Once the Soviet Union expired, at least uh, in its uh, previous form, uh, that that uh, that reason for libertarians and social conservatives and uh, anti-Soviet hawks to to get to collaborate was was not as apparent. And that period of dissolution and 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 the dissolution of that consensus took a while to really become apparent. But it was sufficiently weak when Donald Trump uh, came down his golden escalator in 2015 that. I mean, he he had that insight that uh, th- that this consensus was was not, was fragile, and decided that he was going to replace it. At least he wasn't exactly an ideological warrior. He had certain instincts 
particularly on immigration and trade, where he felt he he departed from the conservative consensus of free trade and uh, what, what we might call on the conservative side, a Canada-style immigration system, where I think the conservative consensus in America prior to Trump was, let's have, let's attract the best and brightest from around the world, but we're not so keen on illegal immigration. That was the conservative position. Trump took a more hawkish line where he said immigration, uh, in, in, the illegal immigration part, we need to be more aggressive on. The establishment Republicans have been too afraid to to fight the left on that particular issue. And plenty of people who, who, who saw themselves as Trump's acolytes were even more aggressive on that. So Trump becomes president. He, he, he does a lot of things to try to secure the border. He uh, launches various trade wars with our neighbors and, and trade partners. But there's a lot of still traditional conservatism in the Trump administration, the, the judges that he appoints, the tax cuts that he enacts, the deregulatory agenda that he puts forth. These are all things that are very much very, uh, very aligned with what we might think of as a traditional conservative movement. So for all the political noise about Trump, and Trump certainly was catnip for, for the media, which always wanted to talk about his latest provocation – from a purely policy standpoint, his administration was a hybrid, a little bit of nationalism grafted in on trade and immigration with the more traditional conservative movement on, on the other fronts that I mentioned. Now, fast forward to today, we're recording this in 2023, and things look a little different. There are people who think of themselves as ideological nationalists, not attached at all to or at least not inherently to that old conservative consensus from from the twentieth second half of the twentieth century, who say let let's if, if let's take Trumpism to its logical conclusion and not only be against free trade and against immigration, but against freedom more broadly, and say like look the most important thing is national cohesion, cultural cohesion. These things are much more important than freedom. And if we are forced to choose between the two, we need to choose national cohesion over freedom. And to their credit, the nationalists started organizing conferences. And there was a kind of an elite group of intellectuals who'd been writing in various blogs and forums and housed at certain think tanks that, that were relatively maybe less prominent at the time, but are more prominent now. And they really organized and said, hey, let's have conferences. Let's network so that we can staff Capitol Hill with our people and, and staff presidential campaigns with our people. And let's create an ideology, as our, I should say, recreate or re reestablish an ideology that's prevalent all over the world. Nationalism is a very old idea, but let's let's create an American or a, a version of nationalism that is compatible with all these global versions of nationalism. And let's let's uh, turn that into a an ideological center that discards the old American conservative consensus, which is really about preserving America's liberal tradition, classical liberal tradition. And so last year in 2022, the national conservatives put together a, a statement of principles and really started to attract a lot of people who said, hey, you know, uh, this is now the base and the energy behind the conservative movement in America. If I want to run for president or run for Senate, and this is what I this is what I've got to to support. And I think what you see today is that uh, you know, 13 years ago when the Tea Party was the, was the the hot hotness, the new hotness, every every Republican politician said, "Well, I got to be like the Tea Party. I got to talk about the Constitution. I got to talk about limited government." And today we have this new thing where you know everyone thinks, "Okay, well, if I'm going to win a primary in the Republican Party, I've got to be a nationalist. I've got to talk about." how much I hate immigration, how much I'm concerned about national cohesion. I've got to fight the culture wars even more aggressively than conservatives have in the past. And it's not like cultural issues have not been front and center throughout uh, modern American history, but the nationals feel like that's one thing they want to fight particularly aggressively. So all this to say that that, that if you are a young person, if, you're, if you've just graduated from college, which means you're 21, 22 years old today, that means you are 14, 15 years old when Trump went down that escalator, right? And so your entire sentient life in terms of being interested in politics, this is what conservatism is for you. Conservatism is Trump 
conservatism is the nationalist intellectuals who who've been the biggest cheerleaders for Trumpism. And those of us who have that pro-freedom orientation have, I think, not, I wouldn't say I put myself in this camp, but I think a lot of people who thought of themselves, think of themselves as pro-freedom, have thought, well, Trump is a phase. Trump, it, Trump lost in 2020. Maybe he runs again, maybe he doesn't. But eventually Trump himself will no longer be a presidential candidate at some point. You know, you can only run twice or be president twice for two terms. So at a certain point, Trump will go away and things will go back to normal, or at least those of us who who, uh, who believe in that traditional consensus or post-World War II consensus can reassert ourselves. And I think what we've seen in the last 12 months in particular, that that's, that's not the case. That if you're passive as a pro-freedom conservative, you're going to lose that debate because the conservative movement that is that that is growing underneath your underneath the table is a nationalist-oriented conservatism. And that nationalism, I mean, again, for those who aren't familiar with the political science around what is nationalism, this may seem like, what's the big deal? I'm, you know, if you're Canadian or if you're American, you might think, well, what's what's wrong with being nationalist? What's, what's wrong with being pro-Canada? Or what's wrong with being pro-America? Aren't I, I, I mean, I want to be pro-America. What's wrong with that? Uh, we were just talking about the Canadian Olympic hockey team. I mean, I... Canadians are are incredibly polite, except when it comes to hockey. When it comes to <laughs> hockey, you know, Bobby Clark, you know, destroys somebody with his, his stick. That's okay, right? You know, the the the, the inherent uh, nationalist qualities of the Canadians come out when when hockey is uh, is on 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 the on the, on the tape. So, um, nationalism is is not merely being uh, in favor of your country's success. That's a really important thing to understand. But that confusion is what helps nationalists. nationalists. Nationalists benefit from the confusion where people say, hey, I'm pro-America. That means I'm a nationalist. Whereas, no, no, that doesn't make you a national. Nationalism is a specific ideology in which you believe that freedom needs to be suppressed in the service of the nation and that the nation needs to be put above all other possible interests, such as your individual liberty. Whereas the American view has always been, the, 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 or at least traditionally has been, the way that America has become the greatest country in the world is because freedom has made us the greatest country in the world. The fact that we attract the best and brightest from around the world, the fact that we have this dynamic, innovative economy where you can start new companies and generate new ideas that change the world. Those are the things that make America the greatest country in the world. There's a reason why Hungary is not the greatest country in the world. There's a reason why America surpassed Britain as the greatest country in the world. It's because we embodied freedom, not merely that we were pro-America. So this debate has has become pretty significant in that if you just sit around and say, you know, the nationalists are going to expire because their ideas are obviously wrong, that's not true. Bad ideas, as we as we see throughout history, can last a long time. And so I thought, and, and a number of others thought as well, that it was important for those of us who believe that freedom and the classical liberal tradition of America was in, is, was essential to what makes America great, to assert that and to reassert that, to create our own statement of principles, so that if you're a young person graduating from college or or, or getting your start in politics, you have two choices. If you think of yourself as conservative, you could say, "Okay, maybe I agree with the nationalists, and I really don't think freedom is that important." Or I do think freedom is important, so I'll side with the freedom conservatives. But let's give them the choice, number one. And number two, let's make sure that we're addressing the failings or gaps in the conservative movement of the United States of the late 20th century. Because there are gaps, there are flaws, and the nationalists, to their credit, have identified some of those flaws. Uh, in certain ways, they've doubled down on some of the flaws of 20th century American conservatism and that one of the biggest flaws, in my view, of, of late 20th century American conservatism is that it did not reconcile itself to a diversifying America. The, the conservatism of Bill Buckley and Barry Goldwater was opposed to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation in the South. And a lot of the national conservatives, whether they explicitly say so or not, that's the part of the old conservative consensus that they're 
they're not necessarily exercised about. They they see the diversification of America racially and ethnically as a threat to the America that they that they want to reestablish. And I think for those of us on the other side of this debate, we see America, as many Americans have throughout history, as an idea, a thing that makes America different from every other country in the world historically, is that America was not a place of blood and soil. America was a place where if you believed in America's principles, we welcomed you from any other place in the world. And one could argue that Canada represents or reflects those principles even more than America does today. But to the degree that America has had this, I mean, the, the America that I grew up with, that's what made it, that's what we all thought about. Reagan's last speech as president, he said, you know, I got a letter from one of my constituents and it said, you know, the thing that makes America special is you, you can move to Germany, but you'll never be a German. You can move to Turkey, but you'll never be a Turk. You can move to Japan, but you'll never be Japanese. But anyone from any corner of the world can come to America and become an American. And that was something that Reagan wanted to always remind us of that made America special. But the nationals don't believe that. They believe that what makes America special is its Anglo-American and Christian heritage, which then writes off a lot of others. So I've gone on for a long time, but the point I, the points I've been trying to make is there's there are these intellectual currents that that are much more important than the relative transience of Donald Trump that the nationalists have done a really great job of building a movement to to take advantage of the disruption that Trump brought to the American political system. And that those of us who believe in freedom have our own work to do to not only contrast ourselves with the nationalists where appropriate, but also to remedy the flaws and blind spots of the old American conservative movement and respond to the challenges of today. A ton of insight there, Ovik. And we'll pursue some of those lines of of analysis now. To what extent do the tensions that you've just outlined reflect longstanding ones within American conservatism? And to what extent are they new and different? Is this about recalibrating fusionism as conceived by William F. Buckley Jr. or Frank Meyer or others? Or do you see the NatCon project is effectively seeking to undo fusionism and advance a new and different form of American conservatism. Much of your audience may be familiar with what fusionism is, but let's define the term for those who who are not familiar with it. So fusionism was a specific idea that many people attribute to Frank Meyer, who was an American intellectual of the 20th century, who tried to take this three-legged stool that we talked about, the pro-freedom the social conservatism and the anti-communism, but particularly the, the pro-freedom and the social conservative part of it, and say, this doesn't, these don't have to be two factions who are compromising with each other. Frank Meyer's argument was that that the two things are that could be reconciled in, in a coherent philosophy called fusionism, which I mean, I, I actually don't think Frank uh, came up with the term fusion. I think somebody else did. But the idea was that if you truly want to be virtuous, you need to live in, in, in freedom because it's the free choice of doing the right thing. If, if you're forced to do the right thing at gunpoint, that's not really doing the right thing. The, doing the right thing is about doing it of your own free will. And in that way, he tried to bring the social conservatives and the, and the pro-freedom groups together. And there's some power to that. And if you think about uh, the fact that America does not have an established religion today. One, many people argue that the, one of the reasons why certain churches are full, the pews are full in America, whereas if you go to a Denmark or a Church of England church in the UK, the, the, the pews are empty. It's because those churches rely on the state subsidy and the state sanction to es- promote themselves as the established religion. Whereas in America, you're actually forced you don't have those crutches. So you're forced to kind of market yourself and, 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 and appeal to people. And that has created a strength and a robustness and a vitality religion in the United States that doesn't exist in places that have established religions. So those are that, that's a way of, at least in a concrete way, describing what fusionism is. But just to be clear, not everyone who they would describe themselves as freedom conservative is technically a fusionist. And that There are people who are libertarians, not fusionists, that they're not really social conservatives at all. 
who subscribe to freedom conservatives. There are fusionists who do, and there are social conservatives who do say who, for, for just the reasons we've described, that you know you can be a social conservative who says part of what I'm trying to conserve is that liberal tradition because if we don't have a classical liberalism, then the government can suppress my religious liberty. Uh, and uh, the only way to protect my religious liberty is for for there to be limits to government power. Uh, we've seen that in Canada where, I um, mean, I've, I've watched those horrifying videos of, of the police coming into churches and trying to prohibit people from worshiping in churches during the pandemic. So all this to say that there are reasons for social conservatives to be pro-freedom, there are reasons for libertarians to be pro-religion, and there are reasons for fusionists to try to, to hybridize all, all, all these philosophies. Now, having gone off, off on a tangent, I've forgotten your question, so please repeat it. Well, it, it's, it gets to a, a, a deeper point, in a way, that you outlined it in your first answer. Let, let me set it up for you this way, Ovik, and then you can respond. One thing that strikes me about the debate is it seems to be fundamentally about what conservatives are conserving. Uh, I, I've seen this debate play out a bit in Canada, at, at least online. I broadly subscribe to, to Hayek's argument in why I'm not a conservative, in which he makes the case that in North America, conservatives are essentially conserving liberalism. You know, that is to say, the ideas, institutions, and values are liberal ones. So to be a conservative in North America is to conserve that liberal inheritance. And as you said earlier, my sense is there are a lot of natcons, or at least those drawn to their statement, who would challenge that idea. In fact, they might even argue it's one of the reasons that we are so-called losing. Talk a bit about that. At its core is the free con versus natcon debate about whether North American conservatism is small L liberal. The thing you hear a number of the, the natcons say is that those of us who believe in classical liberals of limited government, individual liberty, that we don't know what time it is, that the left has taken over so many of the institutions in society that simply pleading for um, a level playing field, a Robert's Rules of Order or a House of Commons style uh, parliamentary procedure is not good enough because the left doesn't believe in that. And if, if they're if they're advocating authoritarianism of the left, and we're arguing for Marque Marquess of Queensberry rules yes. or Robert's Rules of Order, then it's an inherently unbalanced fight, and we're going to lose that fight. That's their argument. That I've heard it say that liberalism is for losers as a shorthand. Yeah, so the, the, their argument is that you need an authoritarianism of the right to, to, to fight the authoritarianism of the left. And I think that's profoundly wrong on a number of levels, because, in fact, most Americans and most Canadians actually have a live and let live philosophy. You know, if you spend all your time on Twitter or social media or you, you spend most of your life on a college campus or a, or a crazy left wing high school, that you may not have that insight. But for those of us who live in the real world and have actual neighbors that we talk to and actual colleagues and counterparts who live in the real world and are trying to raise families and make a living and pay their bills, that normal person very much wants a world in which he or she is able to live his or her own life and respects the will, the desire of others to live uh, their own way. And so there's been a massive distortion of of uh, of what our, or a misassessment of what our what our society where our society actually is because the far left and the far right are so politically engaged and they spend all their time watching cable news and all their time on social media and they fight each other and they think those are the only two tribes that exist in fact there's this 80% of the country that says you know what i you know uh, i want everyone in america to have a fair shot at success I want every American to to live uh, their lives according to their values, and that's okay with me. As long as they're not telling me what to do, and we all try to help each other where we can, that's that's the spirit of what what, what has made America great. And so that's that's part. You know, one of the things that, that I, there's a an, uh, an essay I wrote for National Review a few weeks ago, or maybe it's a few months ago now, where I talk about this. So that the it's what's really important to understand is if you just if if you're readers were to take the freedom conservatism statement of principles and take the national conservative statement of principles and compare them side to side, 
They might say, well, you know, 80% of these two statements seem pretty similar. Is there, why is everyone fighting about this? Why is this getting all this coverage? It doesn't seem like they're that different. Even my wife said that when I, when I showed her all this. I said, like, what, what, what is this all about? Like, why is it, what's the big deal here? And so I think what's important to understand, particularly on the nationalist side, is that the, nat- the nationalist conservative statement of principles and ours had different purposes. Their statement of principles, in my view, and of course, uh, not everyone has to agree with me, but in my view, their statement of principles was designed to sanitize the darker elements of their movement. The nationalists, the, nas- the energy of nationalism around the world, and certainly in the United States, is driven by, in particular, immigration. And again, I think most of us on the right, almost all of us say we don't like illegal immigration. We want immigration. We are a sovereign country that has the right to determine who enters and who exits this country. But within that, within that stipulation, there's a range of views as to how much immigration or what kind of immigration is appropriate. And there are those who are really animated by the concern that if people who look different or come from different cultures than you know, what we think of as traditionally American, if they come here, then America is not going to be the same anymore. Uh, you, you, the, the comment you often hear is, well, I walk down the street and, and I don't recognize my country anymore. Mm. Well, it's not because the sidewalk walk looks different. It's not because the font on the road signs is different. It's because the people they're walking by on the street look different when they say that. And to me, I get that on a certain level as a human instinct. But again, the thing that has made America special, the thing that has made America exceptional, it's not that America is a Christian country. There are lots of countries that are, have, have the Christian cross on their flags. The United States does not have the Christian cross on its flag. Uh, America does not have an established religion, let alone a Christian established religion. So we are not a country that was founded on Christianity the way that, say, Denmark or England or France were back pre-revolution France, let's say. But we are a country where there's been this creed of, you know, if you believe in the American creed, you're an American. And so the, the national conservative statement was in a way of saying, like, we, we know that there are a lot of people who are out-and-out racists who call themselves nationalists. There are people who are out-and-out anti-Semites who call themselves nationalists. And we want to kind of push them aside and say, no, nationalism is really this honorable tradition of just being for your country and and putting that above freedom but you know basically being pro pro your country and it's not as toxic as you know the german version of nationalism in, in the 1930s and so their statement of principles was very much one of sanitation of trying to marginalize those who give nationalism a bad name from their point of view Whereas for us, the freedom conservatives, we wanted to, first of all, reassert what, that, that freedom is actually the thing that unifies us and defines what makes America great. But I think in my personal case, again, speaking purely for myself, not for anyone else who's a signatory of the document, I think that this, the, the resurgence of this blood and soil racialist conservatism is incredibly dangerous, not merely dangerous on its own right. But for those of us who actually believe in conservatism, who want to conserve America, the American tradition, if we are to say that the conservative tradition in America is only for those who have Anglo-Saxon last names or who come from European countries, then we're guaranteed to lose. You mentioned before, you said, well, the liberals are the losers. I, I would say it's the complete opposite. If you want to win, if you want to have a country that, in which the vast majority of Americans are voting for the principles we normally and traditionally think of as American, you absolutely have to have an inclusive understanding of what it means to be an American. If you don't, then you are guaranteed to lose because you're writing off all the people who look like me, who, who, who aren't going to subscribe to that. And this was the insight of, of Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper in Canada. That, uh, that your listeners, of course, are acutely familiar with. Something I've, I've tried to express and share with my American colleagues. Um, I remember actually prior to the pandemic, I actually spent some time with Pierre Poiliev when he was at that time merely a backbencher in parliament. And I asked him about these things because I was saying, hey, I want to learn about 
what to, what we can do to 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 learn from all the things that you all are doing right, uh, all the things that conservatives in Canada have figured out about understanding that the the immigrants to Canada are actually more culturally conservative than uh, the the English and French Canadians in in many ways. And and why is that? What what is it about the Canadian conservatives that they figured this out? The American conservatives haven't. And, uh, and we can get into that, but I, I find that to be a very interesting topic. And the short answer is you can't simply, the two countries are very different. And they're, you know, you don't have that legacy of slavery and segregation in the United States, which complicates so much of our racial politics. And there are a bunch of other things about Canada, America that are different enough that can conservatives in Canada understand things and are able to adapt to things that we yet have not been able to do, but I hope we will be able to do. And I think the freedom conservatives in America are striving to do. Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. We'll move on from a conceptual discussion about the similarities and differences between the free cons and the nat cons in a moment. But let me just say in parentheses, Ovik, that one of the parts of the National Conservative Manifesto that I find so hard to get my head around is the rejection of viewpoint neutrality and the the, the abandonment of liberalism as the, the basic foundation of American society, and I, I would argue Canadian society. And Setting aside, it seems to me, the normative reasons for why that's a bad idea, it just seems, practically speaking, so many involved in that con movement belong to political minorities. And so uh, abandoning liberalism just seems to me to be something of a political suicide mission. Um, but that's maybe a subject we can talk about an- another time. Well, let, let, me, let me stop you there before you get to that question, because there's a... There's a you know, I think it's really important to understand it's not just about the electoral element. The electoral important is important. Uh, element is important. But it's not just the electoral element. You know, you, you might hear an Akon say, well, who cares about electoral victory? This is about principle. You know, like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul, to to compromise his values? Uh, that's what you might hear a Natcon retort to the political, purely a politically pragmatic argument. That the political pragmatists have sold your people down the river. And so, you know, we can't tolerate that. We've got to fight for our people. And so the thing that's really important to understand as well is that if the NatCon agenda, the NatCon program is to say, well, we're going to control the commanding heights of government education and the media. That's the thing that the, the establishment conservatives have not done. Where, how many divisions does, do the NatCons have? Are you really, do you really have enough people in your movement to man the deep state, to teach all the children in K through 12 education, to to write for the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune? Are you developing that army of journalists and educators and bureaucrats? No, you're not. You don't have enough people in your movement to even represent a majority of the, the Republican Party, let alone of of all of these cultural and intellectual institutions. So if if you're going to give more power to those institutions on the premise that you're going to control those institutions and therefore win, that's delusional. That's even more delusional than the electoral scenario that they envision. I want to ask you a question that I asked a Freecon signatory a couple of weeks ago. If I asked you to be introspective, what parts of the NatCon critique of, say, Reaganism, to use the shorthand, would you agree with? You know, that is to say, in hindsight, where did the Freecons get it wrong? Well, I would say that Reagan specifically did, first of all, it's really important to emphasize, Reagan did a lot of things right that NatCons have no chance of replicating. 
Reagan won 49 states when he ran for re-election in 1984. I'll remind uh, the listeners there are 50 states in the United States. He won 49. The only state he lost was Walter Mondale's native Minnesota. And of course, he lost the District of Columbia, which isn't technically a state. He won 60% of the popular vote. Trump did not win the popular vote. George W. Bush didn't either in 2000. But basically, Republican Party hasn't won the popular vote except once George W. Bush's re-election in uh, 2004 since uh, Reagan and George W. Bush were running around. So there's been a lo- there's been a lot of unpopularity of republicanism and conservatism since the Reagan years, where conservatism was very popular. So that's that's a really important thing to understand is that Reaganism actually succeeded in many ways. Where did Reaganism fail, or where has it yet to succeed? Certainly, I think one thing that Reagan himself would agree he failed at was he did not succeed completely at shrinking the size of government. He was able to deregulate. A lot of the government. He was able to cut taxes and and drive economic growth, stabilize the U.S. dollar, which led to a lot of economic growth. He tamed inflation, which was very important to the prosperity of Americans. But the size of the government, in terms of government spending, continued to increase under Reagan and after Reagan. So that's one area where Reagan didn't succeed. Another area that Reagan didn't succeed at, where the NatCons uh, would criticize him for, is that. The, the cultural left continued to ascend and gain and win a lot of victories. The conservatives won a lot of victories on economics, but the left won a lot of victories in terms of the culture. The culture has moved left since the 1980s, since the 1990s, since the 2000s. And so the NatCons would say, well, you know, this, this whole ideology of freedom has not succeeded at turning the tide against cultural leftism. And, and that's why we, we need a different approach. That's one thing they would say. There are other uh, critiques. One would be that the conservatives didn't didn't sufficiently stem the tide of illegal immigration. And here we're starting to get into the things where I'd say uh, I'll get into. I have a different diagnosis of why why conservatives failed on that topic. Why conservatives failed on cultural leftism. Another thing that that some national conservatives say, not all, is that that the freedom conservatives or the Reaganite conservatives have not sufficiently looked out for the working class that the working class has been hollowed out by by free trade. You know, the steel plants have closed and the jobs have been shipped to China and Mexico and, and other places. That while elites who, who are college educated and who work in finance in Silicon Valley have done very well in America, those ordinary salt of the earth Ameri- Americans who, who work with their hands, they have not done as well. That's one argument you hear. So those are some of the critiques and by the way, there there are critiques from the left of Reaganism that that, that are related to all this too. So this is where I, I'm I'm glad you asked that question because some of these areas where where I feel I personally feel and I think the signatories of of our freedom conservatism statement of principles share this view that that you know there are credit there were there were gaps there were failings of the 20th century conservative movement. How do we address those? What are the what, how do we adapt freedom conservatism to the areas where freedom conservatism has not succeeded? Let's first talk about the working class or working Americans, blue collar Americans, people who don't make the six figure salaries, don't work in the big cities. First thing to say is that the working class is not merely white, right? The working class is Americans of all ethnicities and faiths, and so. Let's make sure we're fighting for all Americans who work for a living, not merely those who uh, who are white. Um, the second thing I would say is is that yes, the cost of living has increased in America uh, in certain ways, not in all ways. Free trade has made the food you eat and the clothes you put on your back much less expensive, much more affordable than they were before. But there are certain aspects of American life that are way more expensive than they were before. Healthcare is way more expensive than it used to be. Childcare is way more expensive than it used to be. A, a college degree or a vocational degree or certificate, these things are way more expensive than they used to be. Why are those things more expensive than they used to be? Not because free markets have made healthcare and education and childcare more expensive. It's because regulations and subsidies in the tax code, government intervention, has made those things more expensive. Where free markets and competition and innovation have been allowed to work in all those areas, 
life is more affordable and of higher quality than it used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it's in these other areas where the government has intervened, where life has become less affordable. So that's an important point. And one of the things we we talk about in our statement is that we commit to deploying the principles of individual liberty and free enterprise to solving the challenges that Americans making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year face when it comes to the rising cost of living. So that's a really important uh, point to make. Another gap in the 20th century conservative movement, one that the national conservatives do not identify or complain about, but one that the left would certainly complain about, is that, as I mentioned before, the the, the conservative movement of Bill Buckley and Barry Goldwater was on the wrong side of the civil rights debates of the 1950s and 1960s. And that is why, to the degree we've lost the culture war, we've lost the culture war. You can't credibly fight the radical left-wing woke nonsense if you yourself don't have the credibility to talk about your bona fides on racial equality. And this is an area where the national conservatives fail. So many of them, and I won't say all, but so many of them, and certainly many who attract a lot of attention for their views, are explicitly against racial equality. They don't believe that people who come to America from non-European countries should have the same rights or dignity or opportunities that European immigrants or or, or, or ancestor people with European ancestry do, that they can't then say, no, 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 look, I'm against the crazy left-wing woke stuff. I'm for racial equality because they're not. And, you know, the average liberally-minded person won't take them seriously when when they say they're for racial equality because actually many of them have not been and so if you want to fight the woke left if you want to win the culture war on things like toleration and dignity and religious liberty you actually have to be for those things you have to be you have to be okay with the fact that people have different religious views than you you have to be you have to genuinely believe that someone can come to america from South America or India or Japan and and be just as American as you or me, you or I. So these are the things where the national conservatives are, are they they argue that the reason the, 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 the Reaganites have failed is because we were too nice to the left. And I would make the, the exact opposite argument is that the Reaganites, the Bill Buckley, Goldwater, Reagan conservative movement, they grudgingly accepted racial equality, but didn't embrace it. They didn't. They, and, and to this day, the conservative movement has, has still a, 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 some work to do to recognize the lasting effects of slavery and segregation on equality of opportunity. I think most of us recognize if you actually just look at the data, it's pretty clear that immigrants to America managed to do pretty well. You know, certain ethnic groups do better than others if you look at the stats, but in general, immigrants to this country do well. The persistent inequality of outcomes and opportunity really comes from those who descended from the system of slavery and segregation. That's the one group that just isn't statistically as a group doing as well as everyone else. Now, the left's view is let's racially discriminate in the other direction. Let's just basically say if you're black, we're going to give you these opportunities to discriminate against everybody else. They give you those opportunities. The right says, we're okay with just being indifferent to the persistent inequality of opportunity. We don't have to do anything about it. We just need to oppose you, the left. The freedom conservatives are making the argument, one of the things we say in our statement, is that we recognize we're totally adamantly against discrimination on the basis of race for or against any group of people. But we also recognize that those who who descend from the victims of slavery and segregation have inequality of opportunity. And we commit to deploying the principles of freedom and liberty to address those problems. So one question we often get is, well, what does that mean? You say that you're against discrimination for or against anybody, so that's good, you know, from a conservative point of view. But you also say you want to resolve these persistent inequalities. Doesn't that mean that you're really just another woke person? And we get that question a lot, which is 
actually kind of unfortunate because the conservative movement in America has full of ideas on how to solve these problems. Take the question of education. So traditionally in America, education has been funded at the local level. And that's great if you're a segregationist, right? Because you, you shunt all the black people over here. You don't let them have the economic opportunities under the segregationist era. And then you say, hey, they, they're responsible for funding their own school. And if that school is poor, well, tough, tough beans. And that's a system we still have today in America, a system that the left, ironically, is trying to, to keep in place. And some people on the right. Whereas we, the freedom conservatives, say, you know what? We're going to give everybody an education savings account where you can go to the school of your choice. Or if you actually don't believe any schools serve you well, hire tutors, use YouTube, use Khan Academy, figure out ways to teach your kids in a way that are consistent with your values and, and your the outcomes you want. And that's a way to equalize the opportunities that have historically been denied those who were subject to the system of slavery and segregation. So all that to say, pardon me, you can have a system that's racially neutral, that is not discriminating for or against anyone on the basis of race, but whose outcomes do a lot to address these historical inequities. And that is what the conservative movement of the 21st century needs to dedicate itself to. And if you do that, you can defeat the wokeness because for that liberal-minded person who wants there to be racial equality, is uncomfortable with wokeness, but sees on the other side an indifference to inequality, if those are the only two choices they have, they might choose the wokeness, or they certainly won't have the courage to stand up to the wokeness. And we give people the courage to stand up to the wokeness because they can point to what we stand for and say, I stand for racial equality. I stand for these reforms that will give us a fairer and freer society. To stay on the subject of policy, talk a bit about how a free con versus nat con politics might produce different policy outcomes with respect to China. How do the free con and nat cons approach a new strategy to China differently? Or do you think there's actually commonality there? I think there's overlap, is what I'd say. I think there are people like myself who are pretty hawkish on China and think that China is an adversary. I mean, there's if you actually take what Chinese the Chinese leaders say to each other, they're preparing for a war with the United States and with the West. And that's <laughs> you can't just sort of sit by passively and ignore that view among the Chinese. There's a there's a book written by a guy named Michael Pillsbury called The Hundred Year Marathon, which is about this millennial, literally millennial ambition of the Chinese to surpass the United States on the 100th anniversary of the of the commun establishment of communist China. And so I think that's something we need to take very seriously. And it's, it's a, in a sense, a kind of new Cold War. People can make fun of someone like me for saying that. But I think that's the reality, is that China is, is a nationalist authoritarian power that wants to defeat the liberal West. Now, there are people on the free con side who would see themselves as hardcore libertarians, as free traders for whom they think, you know, there, there are some in, in our movement who, who, who believe we go too far if we're trying to restrict trade with China. But I think the overwhelming majority of our signatories, at least from the ones I've talked to, recognize that threat. And that's why we don't say in the freedom conservatism statement of principles that we're just free trade absolutists. We say we believe in free trade with free people because free trade only works if both sides are engaging in free trade. If one side is an authoritarian dictatorship that's stealing your intellectual property, engaging in slave labor and, and trying to cheat on trade agreements, then that's not free trade. And so there is important uh, room for us to to talk about the importance of free trade with our allies you know what what, what sometimes gets called friendshoring free trade is economically indisputably a net benefit to americans to the world but bad faith actors in the global markets have to be looked at with clear eyes having said that there are people on the nationalist side who go far farther than what I've described as a kind of moderate or reasonable common sense approach to the China problem. For example, uh, Donald Trump recently proposed a, a global 10% tariff on all goods imported in the United States, which would crush the American economy, increase 
the cost of living for ordinary Americans drive inflation and lead to retaliatory tariffs from our friends and, and allies like Canada, which would in, even, in, you know, which would also affect economic growth and increase the cost of living. And that's an idea that that Robert Lighthizer, who was Trump's trade representative and a senior scholar at American Compass, a prominent nationalist think tank, have been advocating for, for years now. So that goes well beyond just taking on specific bad actors like China. That's about saying Canada and the UK and Germany should also be, we should, we should treat every country the same in terms of whether they're a friend or foe in terms of the way we treat their the goods and services they sell to America. And that, that defies common sense. But that is a serious view that's being, you know, advocated by the leading nominee for president in the Republican Party. So it's absolutely a deadly serious debate. I want to come back to something you raised earlier, and that is the role of, of young conservatives. When I was a young person, libertarianism or freedom conservatism was an obvious entry point into the broader world of conservatism. But I get a sense these days, a lot of younger people are entering conservatism through, for lack of a better term, NatCon issues. Part of it is the rise of identity politics or political correctness. Talk a bit about the debate and how it's playing out with younger conservatives themselves. What I observe is there's two things. One, as we've talked about earlier, the national conservatives have been much more organized in asserting that they've developed a new consensus. And I would emphasize that's not a consensus at all, but they've, they've, they've argued that uh, the, old, the old late 20th century Buckley, Reagan, and Reaganite consensus is dead, and they've, they've created the new vanguard consensus, uh, which again is really actually an old consensus. The, the, what nationalists are trying to revive is the conservatism of the 1930s. Uh, which you know, which has been around again for a long time. It's not actually that new, but but that's part of it. The other part of it is that if you are the kind of person who wants to engage in the battle of ideas, you're typically somebody who went to college. One third of Americans go to college, but among people who are politically oriented, it's disproportionately a college educated group. Certainly, in the intellectual side of things, the ideas side of things, and if you've gone to college. Since 2015 in particular, that was really the year where things started to change in the United States. You have been just inundated with the nonsense, the craziness of the radical left. And it radicalizes a lot of people. If you, if you, if you believe there are two genders and you believe that as a white person, you shouldn't live the rest of your life flagellating yourself because you happen to be white, it's understandable that someone who comes out of that environment uh, is going to is going to say that this is the thing I this is the most important thing to fight. I, I have to fight the battle of whether or not, as as a white person, I have the same dignity as anybody else. Whether I can raise kids who who can who actually could be raised the way I want them to be raised instead of being administered puberty blockers without my consent. So I can see why, if you come out of that environment, you're you're going to feel much more that. That, that the culture war is everything and that the nationalists are the only people fighting the culture war. And both those things are wrong. Uh, and that's and that's where the freedom conservatives come in. The freedom conservatives say, hey, we also think you should have the freedom to raise your children the way you want. We also think that racial discrimination or against any person or group of people is wrong. You know, there's in that sense, there's no difference between us and the nationalists. The, the difference is uh, on the nationalist side, they go beyond that. They say things like, well, some nationalists go beyond that and say, you know, if you're if you're from a, the, some of the euphemisms or things like, well, if you're an old stock American or if you are a European American, then you're, you're, you're somehow more virtuous than these, these who come here and, and don't believe in America the way the old uh, the older old stock Americans do. Which is actually not empirically true. A lot of times it's the immigrants who understand and believe in America more passionately because they know what it's like to live somewhere else. They don't take for granted what America stands for and what America has offered them or Canada for that matter. So uh, that, that perception is wrong. And, and, and the other piece that I'd mention is that culture is not the only thing that matters. Culture does matter quite a bit for sure. But the deficit matters too. The unemployment rate matters. 
the opportunity that people have to work and feed their families and put a roof over their heads, that matters too. And if you only talk about gender warfare and transgender politics and you're you're indifferent to whether or not people can actually feed their families and pay their bills, that's elitist too. You know, one thing that my friend Oren Cass is fond of saying when he talks about his antipathy to free trade is he says, Americans have to get over their addiction to cheap stuff. And I would respond, you know, it's very, it's elitist. It's, you know, the nationals call themselves populist, but what is more elitist than being somebody who makes a six-figure salary in a very, uh, with a lot of job security, saying that those, those ordinary Americans, the plebeians, have to get over their addiction to cheap stuff. As if they've got spare money under the couch cushion that they can that they can spend on goods and services that are more expensive than things they need every day. They don't have that money lying around. They don't have even a couple hundred dollars in the bank. And so the idea that we're going to be indifferent to the cost of living, that we're going to be indifferent to economic growth, that we're going to be indifferent to how the debt and deficit lead to the degradation of the dollar and the decreased purchasing power that ordinary people have, that's a profound mistake. And, and this is where I think one of the ways in which nationalist movement is really failing is that they think that more government intervention in the left-wing sense will cure the ills of the working class. They'll only make those ills even worse than they are today. We're speaking on September 12th, 2023. All things being equal, it looks like Donald Trump may indeed be the Republican nominee once again. And to the extent that you contribute ideas to him, I guess they'd be roughly NatCon. Is that a sign that the free cons are losing the debate? And if so, what can you and others do to restore the freedom conservative place in the modern American conservative movement? I think it's important to emphasize, and we talked about this a little earlier, that Donald Trump was not a pure nationalist. He was nationalist in some areas, again, particularly when it comes to free trade. He's very, very hostile to illegal immigration. But he's not actually hostile to legal immigration. And he was not hostile to tax cuts or deregulation or to constitutional and Supreme Court justices, at least in his first term. Now, in his second term, it's possible that he governs differently than his first term. It could be that because the nationalist movement is more organized and because a lot of people who served in his administration last time would not serve again for him, maybe things would be different in a second term. And also because he wouldn't run for re-election, all kinds of things could be different. It's hard to predict. But if we go by what, how Trump governed in his first term, he did not govern as an ideological nationalist. There's a I wrote a piece for a different piece for National Review where I talked about Asian Asian Americans in the Republican Party in which I actually talk a lot about uh, Jason Kenney and, and Steve Harper. And I mentioned in this piece that one of the things that, that makes Donald Trump different from a hardcore nationalist along the lines of Steve Bannon is that Donald Trump is for skilled immigration. He complained prior to running for president. He was on Steve Bannon's talk show. And he said to Steve Bannon, it's so stupid that we... We bring these brilliant people from around the world to American universities, the greatest universities in the world, and we, we train them in engineering, and then we don't let them stay here. We force them to go back to India and China and Japan. Like, why do we do that? We should keep them here. Why don't we want to keep our talented people here in America? And Steve Bann's like, well, sir, I don't, I don't see why you feel that way. I, I think there are too many South Asian CEOs in Silicon Valley. And Trump's like, what are you talking about? This is stupid. We need to keep all these people here so that they can make America great. And he, true to his word, a few years later, when he was president, actually uh, rolled out an immigration plan, an immigration reform plan, whose goal was to basically make Amer the American immigration system look more like Canada's. We cracked down on illegal immigration, but we used a points-based system to move from the, the, the legal immigration we, system we have now, where it's basically if you're related to somebody who's an immigrant in, already in America or related to a citizen, you can come here. But if you're actually a super genius electrical engineer or computer scientist or whatever. You're not. You're not allowed to come here, basically. We sent all those people to Canada. <laughs> Justin Trudeau actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
you know, to this thing where he said basically all the high school immigrants that can't stay in the United States will take him to Canada, uh, which was not only just a brilliant trolling exercise, but but an effective economic policy. And oversubscribed, I would add. And oversubscribed. It sold out in 48 hours. And so that's an example of the kind of thing. Actually, Trump wants to fix that. And, and freedom conservatives will be for that. And so I say all that to say that I think there are a lot of things that, that are potentially dangerous about a second Trump term, especially after January 6th, especially after he made clear that he does not take the peaceful transfer of power for granted. I think that's the thing about, about a, a second Trump term that, that concerns me. But in terms of economic policy, if you go by how he governed in his first term, I don't think it's purely a nationalist victory if he were to win. Now, again, things could be very different the second time around. We just don't know. A ton of insight in an answer, Ovik, because there's been throughout this conversation. I'm grateful for the time to help understand these debates within American conservatism and the potential for them to manifest themselves here in Canada. I've been speaking to Ovik Roy, the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean, and uh, wish Canadians the, the best of luck in navigating these, these new times. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.